Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It'd be difficult to find a more impressive CV in the history of netball anywhere in the world. Three world championship wins in four attempts, two Commonwealth Games gold medals, a record 122 games for Australia, five years as captain. But as you're about to find out, there is so much more to Liz Ellis than stats and records and wins and losses. This is the Playmakers Playbook, brought to you by BuildCorp, celebrating 30 years of continual learning and successful partnering. Hello, I'm Nick McArdle, host of the Playmakers Playbook. If you want to be a better leader in business, sport or the everyday, or if you simply just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Liz Ellis is an athlete, media personality, an advocate for women's sport and, more importantly, a mum to two beautiful kids. And in all of those endeavours, she's been a fighter because she's needed to be. Probably one of the most determined players that I'd ever coached. Liz left nothing to chance and uh, as a captain she she led from the front. She was courageous on court, she had a go at everything and so she could show her team that's what you need to do at top level to win. How good is she? She's a legend of the game. She was captain for five years. Um, That's an excellent record. Two former coaches and mentors there in Norma Plummer and Joyce Brown with just a, a hint of what made Liz Ellis such a fine leader for Australian netball. Liz, welcome to the Playmakers Playbook. Oh, Nick, it's great to be here. It's always good to chat to you. Yes, thank you for that. Now, you're joining us today from the family farm near Byron Bay. Now, at the moment, given what we're going through, that must feel like a, a haven, a, a real getaway. It does. And, you know, for the past three months, we've just really cocooned ourselves here. So we're halfway between Byron Bay and Lismore, which gives you a sense of my ego. I live near somewhere called Lismore. <laughs> ha ha. Boom tish. I'm here all week. Um, yes, it was, it was been interesting. We moved up here about eight years ago and I started just to commute to Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane to work. And um, I hadn't really thought too much about it being a hideaway. But when the COVID crisis hit and um, Channel 9 decided that there was um, only going to be essential domestic travel. So as, in terms of sport, I became pretty non-essential. So I stayed at home and it has been a real haven. It's been beautiful. And, you know, we grow lots of our own food and um, we're pretty self-sufficient up here. So it was sort of took a lot of the stress away. What do you, what do you really love about the farm? The quiet, the peace and quiet, you know, we're, um, our driveway is a kilometre long, so that gives you a sense of how far away the road is and our roads are very quiet roads. So I love, um, yeah, the, the tranquility. So I'm a very driven, <laughs> this will surprise no one, I'm a very driven personality type, very typical type A and highly competitive, 
goal oriented but moving up here to the farm has really taken the edge off that a lot and having kids so um, I feel so much more relaxed these days and I'm a bit more laid back <laughs> than I used to be so love the tranquility and I love um, I love to cook Nick so grow, I love to grow my own food I'm, as we speak I'm looking at my veggie patch and you know, I've got broccoli and Asian greens and potatoes and peas and tomatoes and all sorts of things growing. So, um, and my husband's a beef farmer. I've got chickens. We raise a couple of pigs every year. So I love the challenge of cooking nose to tail and having the time to do it slowly. It's beautiful. It's a good way to live. From paddock to plate, you're living my dream. Um, well, it sounds like you have changed a lot from the young woman who... Uh, just finished her law degree and dreamed of making partner in the big end of town in Sydney. That must seem like a lifetime ago. It seems like some. It feels like somebody else's life. I was speaking to uh, one of my neighbours the other day who used to work for a firm in the same building as I did. So I worked for Cause Chambers Westgarth and we were in um, the Governor Philip Tower in the middle of Sydney and of oh, Governor Macquarie. They were the same. They're in the same area. So um, it's been that long and I'll forget which tower it was. And we were just talking about you know, the demands of the job. And I was really determined that I was going to make partner and captain the Australian netball team. And <laughs> now that I look back, like there's a Venn diagram. If you do a Venn diagram for both of those things, they actually wouldn't overlap. It's almost impossible to do both. Um, so uh, I worked for about four years in property and infrastructure and I, I liked my job. Um, I wasn't great at, at it I've got to say I wasn't passionate about the law and you've got to be fairly passionate about it to do it particularly well especially in that sort of high pressure environment but I liked it I liked the people loved the people that I worked with um, but it was interesting one day my partner said to me you know um, you've got a, a really good grasp of, of how business is done and how personalities work and how people work but your knowledge of the law is shit so <laughs> <laughs> which kind of worked against you right yeah, given that I was a lawyer. So, um, you know, when it came, there came a point uh, sort of four or five years into my legal career where my netball was going really well, but I felt that I wasn't doing either of them properly. I felt, you know, if I stayed at work and did all my work, then uh, it, it would cut into my training time and my ability to do what I needed to train. And if I did all my training properly, then I was letting clients down. And I've got the sort of personality that I, I don't like to let people down. I don't like to to be disappointing and to not do things 100%. So I came home to my husband one day and we just got married and had a mortgage in Sydney. And I said, oh, I don't think I can do both anymore. And he thought I would say, well, I'll give up that fall. <laughs> uh, but I said, no, I'm going to I'm gonna leave my job. And he, he was actually pretty supportive because he had played football at a pretty high level, rugby union, and his career had been curtailed through injury. So he was, he was pretty supportive. He said, look, We'll, we'll figure out a way and we did you know we eventually figured out a way for me to earn um, a living while I was able to play netball yeah because it's not like you were going to uh, rely on your netball income to support a mortgage <laughs> in Sydney no do you know I posted I found an old contract the other day and I posted on social media and it was it was a really early contract that I signed and it was um, we got I think $50 a game and six rolls of strapping tape and two pairs of ASICS netball shoes <laughs> for the year, Nick. And as you know, I've got very expensive tastes. So. <laughs> oh, that's outstanding. And what about um, growing up in, in Western Sydney? Did you come from a sporting family? Uh, yeah, I did actually. Um, I sort of don't, I don't think of it as being a sporting family, but then when you look at it, it, it is. So um, I guess probably because... Um, 
I, watch, I used to watch my mum play netball and she just, I shouldn't say just, she played local sort of C-grade netball, but she was a bit older when my sister and I were born. So we, we missed her glory days playing local rep netball. But my dad actually was a really well-known stock car driver in his, in his younger days. Um, he was the Australian stock car champion and used to race at the Sydney showground. So he had a bit of a reputation um, as a fairly aggressive driver. His nickname was Wrecker. And I remember <laughs> one day at a stock car reunion, one of his um, his mates said to me, you know, I've watched you play netball. You play netball like your father used to race cars. <laughs> <laughs> and given that dad's nickname was Wrecker, there's probably a few goal shooters who'd agree with that. I'm not sure whether that's a compliment or not, actually, but it got the job <laughs> no, done, look- right? <laughs> I know, I took it as a compliment. So, yeah, and actually my little boy, he's four and he's obsessed with the movie Cars at the moment yep. and I got Dad's old scrapbook out the other day and he couldn't believe that his his grandpa used to ride, used to drive um, Doc Hudson, you know, the fabulous Hudson Hornet. That's what my Dad's car looked like. So, um, we've, and in Dad's scrapbook, there's lots of photos of Dad looking dashing with his helmet and there's quite a few of him on his roof and there's a couple of him getting into an ambulance. So, that probably sums up his uh, stock driving career, his stock career, car career. Yeah. And, and so if your mum was a netballer, did that mean that you were always going to play netball? Was it just no, a given? No, it wasn't. It was, it was quite the opposite, actually. So um, mum played and I used to watch her play when I was little, and but I'd never expressed any desire to, to play netball. And one day one of mum's friends uh, rang her up, a woman, a woman called Sheila Ether, who... I have much to be grateful for. She rang mum and said to mum, I'm putting together the Green Hills under eights or under sevens netball team, whatever age it was. Does Liz want to play? Mum said no. She's a bit uncoordinated and she's a bit of a, bit of a bookworm. Oh, look, I don't think team sports are for her. So, you know, Sheila went away and netball women are phenomenal women. They don't take no for an answer. They always get what they want and they'll figure out a way to do it. And that's sort of where so many um, netball players, we've learnt leadership through watching the women at our local association level who always find a way to get what they need. You know, you ask anyone in local government and they'll tell you that netball women get what they need. Yep. Um, So Sheila uh, rang mum back about a week later. She said, oh, Margaret, you won't believe what I've just seen. Did you know that 95%, I saw this on television, 95% um, of juvenile delinquents have actually never played team sport, right? So in that week I had tried to set the house alight um, no. and mum and dad were a, bit, <laughs> were a bit worried that um, I might turn into a juvenile delinquent. So Sheila's timing was exquisite and mum said, yep, yeah, Liz can play on the proviso that she can stop whenever she felt like it. So it took me 27 years to stop and there you go. Oh, that is fantastic. And so even then, when did you start to understand that you were actually pretty good at it? Oh, it took a little while. I made the the rep team in my, like the first year I tried out, so under 11s, and then I missed out the following year. So it was a really good lesson for me in that I was good, but I actually needed to um, sort of turn up to selections prepared to play as hard as I could and to, and to select myself. So it took me like a couple of years to get into a rhythm of, of being selected, but it wasn't until I was, because back then, you know, netball wasn't on television, didn't have the excellent commentators that it has these days. Outstanding. And, <laughs> and I, World's I can, best. I can feel your eyes rolling, <laughs> you know, 900 kilometres away, Nicholas. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there was like, it didn't have the profile it had now. So, 
I loved playing it and I knew that I was good, but I didn't really have any sense of how good I could become or what was out there for me to do. So I just sort of went through the motions almost. Like I just wanted to play reps because I love the fact that when you play the reps, you can go to a carnival on a Sunday and play nine games of netball in a day. So then my whole weekend was playing netball and I was happy. And I didn't really have a, a sense of anything bigger than that. Mm. And uh, and look what happened. Liz, um, it has has been a long while since we've caught up, but the reason I really wanted to get you on the podcast um, was because Dave Misson, the high-performance guru, uh, was on a couple of months ago, and, and he said that you, along with former Swans captain uh, Stuart Maxfield and Steve Waugh, were the three best leaders he had ever worked with. When did you first realise that you had some ability to, to lead and to bring a group together? Oh, that's very kind of me. So it's kind of nice of him to say that because you know what else he said about me once? He told me that I cornered like an ocean liner. <laughs> he didn't mention so, that. <laughs> he's got some sucking up to do. Uh, he used to flog us mercilessly. And, you know, and I love anyway. So that's a whole other conversation, obviously. Um, what was your question? When did I realise yeah, that I did, had... Did you get a, a sense early on that you could actually bring a group together? Uh, do you know, I, there's, a, there's two parts to that question. I always have been really confident. Um, even as a kid, once I started playing netball and it, um, it sort of faced me outwards, I got me away from my books and I realised that, you know, I, my confidence in myself was something that people liked and were drawn to and responded to. So, you know, like I was the school captain at primary school and that sort of stuff. So I've always been a confident kid who was prepared to lead. But there's a... Leadership is an interesting beast. You can lead in terms of you can say you speak your mind and and get people to do what you want to do, but there's a number of ways of doing that. And I, I feel um, actually that's a great, a lovely thing for Miso for Dave Misson to say that I could I was a leader who could bring people together because that to me is a really difficult part of leadership is to not bully people along, push them along, pull them along, but actually bring them together and go along with them and maybe stand at the head of that line. So um, that took me a long time to work out how to lead like that. You know, initially my leadership, even as a kid, was about being the loudest and the bossiest in the room. And it evolved over a number of years to, you know, 20 years later when I was the captain of the Australian netball team, my leadership was about, um, not so much telling people what to do and being the loudest, but actually not talking and listening and finding some consensus and bringing people along with me to where I, I wanted the team to go. So that took a lot of thinking and self-reflection and being really honest about what I was doing with my leadership to be able to get to that point. One of your uh, former teammates told me that she always regarded you as an unselfish player. Everything you did was for the betterment of the team. And uh, she also told me a couple of other stories that we won't go to. <laughs> but oh you were, goodness, I was getting nervous. But you were, all, you were always um, opinionated and forthright, but it was always as an advocate for your players. I mean, that's got team first written all over it, that, that, uh, that testimony. Oh, and it's, again, that's really nice to hear because that's how I tried to lead. I don't think as a leader that you can ask your team to do anything that you're not prepared to do yourself. And I think for me in particular, it was important as, you know, we, we spoke about how little I got paid, but um, as netball became more and more high profile, I started to pick up some contracts and I was probably the best paid player by a long shot 
in terms of just earning money outside the sport. And I wanted to make sure that I didn't keep all that for myself and that I used my profile to not, you know, keep everything to me, but to generate opportunities for other players. So for me, it was about generating opportunities for players. It was about making sure as a team that our team was the best resource we could possibly be, um, that everyone was able to share the spoils, I guess, of a higher profile. Um, and then on court, I think if you play defence, you have to be team first, right? Because mm. there's not a lot of glory in defence, especially in netball when the umpires dislike you as much as they do. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think um, I developed that team first ethos from a very young age. And I think what netball does very well as a sport is, you know, when you're a kid in the sport and you're playing, then if you're in the reps, there's an expectation that you will turn up and coach younger kids, that you will work in the canteen, that you will umpire, that you will... So, you are taught from a very early age that for the sport to survive, you have to actually give back to the sport. Mm. So then for me as a leader, that probably fed into my leadership that I was always trying to make sure that everyone got to share the spoils, that um, that it was team first, that, that everyone's goals fed into what the team needed to achieve. And I think the fact that the Swifts um, were so successful when I was a captain and the Diamonds were successful towards the end of my time as captain is probably testament to that. And I'm quite comfortable in talking about my success as a leader because I had plenty of times where I didn't have success as a leader and I had to go back and think about why. So when I was successful, it was because I had that team first ethos and my whole why around leadership was about the team, not about me. So you're saying when there wasn't success, you were very, uh, one of your strengths was to be able to analyse what was going going wrong and, and essentially what you could do better as a leader. Was, did that become a habit throughout your career? Yeah, and I think self-reflection is really important in leadership and it's difficult because it's hard. You know, one of the reasons that people become leaders is because, um, you know, they're confident and we've got big egos, right? And it's really hard um, to actually reflect honestly because it can dent your ego. I think self-reflection is a really difficult skill and it takes practice to develop it and to do it honestly and to seek honest feedback from people about how you performed as captain. And I've got to say that my coach, Julie Fitzgerald at the Swifts, was terrific at that. You know, she would give me really brutally honest feedback. And it's hard to receive that sort of feedback, especially when you've got captain written beside your name. But if you want to get good at what you do, you've actually got to spend that time speaking to other people, getting feedback from the people who work with you in that role, and then being prepared to take that feedback on board and change change what you do and that's not easy and that's where I think um, a lot of leaders fall down is that you get you get the job of leader and you think right well everything I do must be right and that's not the case at all everything you do must be questioned by yourself there's a little parallel there to uh to this sort of I don't know it's a it's a consensus that that leaders are born in some way that, that that leaders have you know this natural ability the more people I speak to on, on this podcast, the more I've come to understand that that's not really the case, that most leaders really have to uh, learn and, 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 and develop and, and, and listen and, and consult. There's, there's not really um, anyone that's ever been a great leader that's done it just through natural ability. No, and that's like anything, isn't it? Like sport teaches you, you get born with certain natural talents, but that doesn't determine that you're going to be successful. Like when I was a kid, I can tell you the names of five kids who were more talented than I was, but they didn't play for Australia. They didn't have the work ethic to do it. 
And it's the same with leadership. You know, I think people are born um, with tools, with certain with certain aspects of leadership that they might naturally have. Confidence is one of those things that you're either born with or develop very young. Um, the ability to think clearly, the ability to assess a situation in the heat of battle and react to it, right? That's They're things that, that might be innate, but they don't necessarily make you a good leader. Mm. And I know, um, you know, it's interesting. We talk about, my husband and I talk about leadership a lot. You know, he captained the Australian under-21s rugby union team. Yet you couldn't find two more different personalities than he and I. You know, my little girl commented the other day, she's like, I know why you and Dad got married because you talk a lot and he listens a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Because he doesn't have a choice. (laughs) That's right. There's no no room for him to get a word in edgeways. So, you know, I think, um, yet he was a really effective leader and... um, uh, and I was an effective leader, but we're so vastly different. So you can actually come to the job of leadership through a number of different ways with a number of different skills and no no two leaders are the same. So no, I don't think leaders are born. I couldn't agree with you more, Nick. I think leaders are made. You're born with certain skills and then you can upskill yourself in certain areas. But to be a good leader, you actually have to go through a process. Yeah. Um, what, what, what are the key ingredients to being a great team? You think about the really excellent teams that you played in, whether it be, you know, world championship teams or Commonwealth Games gold medal winning teams. Is, is there a common thread through that? Um, it's a really good question. Um, yeah, I think there is a common thread and um, unity of purpose is really important. And that's not your coach or your captain telling you what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. It's actually everyone having some input. So when I think about, the Swifts, the club team that I played in, that I captained for the last, um, I don't know, eight years, I think, of my career. For, at, when we got to the point where we were, we were winning premierships regularly, it was all about unity of purpose. Everyone really understood what we were trying to do, but they also understood how we were trying to do it. And they understood it because as a team, we had determined it. We didn't have anyone come in or the, ca- the coach stand there or me stand there and say, we're going to win this year and this is how and give everyone a roadmap. We actually everyone talked and and the leadership of the group listened. So Julie Fitzgerald, the coach, myself as captain, um, you know, my vice captain, the various vice captains that I had, Kat Cox, um, Reagan Jackson, people who were really very good at um, listening to what everyone else wanted. So, you know, we were very good at, at that unity of purpose and because we did it together, and this was especially the case with the Diamonds team in that last year that I played, um, you know, going into that 2007 World Cup, we'd lost the 2003 World Cup to New Zealand. We'd lost the Commonwealth Games in 2006. We lost that gold medal final to New Zealand and we're playing that World Cup in New Zealand. So you can't go into a World Cup in New Zealand playing against the best team in the world, potentially in the final, with any chinks in your armour. And the way we did it was to be really clear at the start of the year about what sort of team we wanted to be. So we had lots of conversations about it and we came up with a sentence, the Australian netball team is proud, united and relentless. And we set a heap of behaviours around that, what the expected behaviours were. And the team set that. It wasn't the coach saying, you will do this, you will do that. We said, we will do this, we will do that. And then there was accountability and the accountability was important because we could all pull each other up. So the most junior member of the team could pull me up if they felt that I wasn't adhering to that behaviour. And that was important. And I think every successful team when you pull them back, is that everyone knows their job, everyone has had input into what 
the team is trying to do and how they're trying to do it. You must have played in teams. I mean, that, that in that scenario, everyone's buying in. When you're at that level, everyone's agreed, yep, we're on board with that. You must have played in teams, though, where um, not everyone buys into the team ethos or, you know, there, there's a, a really talented player, but they don't quite fit, but, but they're valuable for the team. What do you do in that situation to bring a, a group together? <laughs> Yeah, look, that's a good question. And I've played in teams, you know, I've played in teams that were incredibly successful despite the fact that we didn't have that unity of purpose, but the success was short-term, you know. Mm -hmm. So we might have won one year but then fell off the next year or fell off over the next four-year cycle because it, it really took just a moment of magic to get that the result, like the World Cup win or the grand final win, but the magic couldn't be sustained because we didn't have that unity of purpose. So... There's only so much you can do, I think, when um, if you're not a leader within the group, if you're not the captain, not the coach, because leadership comes, like that sort of unity of purpose does come from the top. And, you know, the, the saying the fish rots from the head is is mm. is also true in that, um, you know, if you're sitting within a group and your leadership isn't doing the job, you're a little bit limited as to what you can do. But... I reckon when things are like that, you have to make sure that you're doing everything that you can control. You've got to con control what you can. If you can't control the leadership of your group, whether it's in business or whether in sport, what you can control is the area immediately around you. So for me in those sort of teams, I made sure that my, um, you know, that my training was top notch, that everything that I did uh, spoke to the team, that I really worked hard for the team and that where I could speak up and where I could have influence, I did. But sometimes you just have to accept that um, that's not possible unless you're prepared to actually step out completely from the team. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, and that's a really difficult thing to do. So I've got to say, I, I did that. I've done that a couple of times in business. You know, I've been in, I've been, at, I've sat on boards or I've thought, you know what, this isn't going where I, I'm comfortable with, with this organisation going. And I've stepped out because, at the end of the day, you've only got your own personal integrity. That's really what you carry through with you. And if you're in a situation where you can see the leadership isn't doing the right thing, it's hard when you're in a sporting team. That's a different thing. But if you're in a business, um, and for me, I've been in a couple of situations where I just think this isn't right, what's happening. And I thought if I stay in this, then my integrity is shot. So I've just stepped out of it. So, you know, they're the sort of decisions you have to make when you can see that the leadership of whatever team that you're in isn't doing the right thing being true to yourself yeah um it's something that's going to be top of mind for a lot of businesses as we try to get back to normal after covid um the need to build or or rebuild your team um and that might mean you know redundancies or or you know certainly working differently working leaner uh, perhaps rebuilding the culture what, what are the building blocks for businesses looking to get back to normal after what we're going through yeah, I think if you're going to be doing that and making significant changes, you actually have to listen to your people. And I think um, it's it will be tempting for leaders in business to go back in after COVID and go, right, here are all the answers. This is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it. And the people who you're trying to lead are either going to put their heads down and not buy into it completely but not, um, you know, not do enough to, the, you know, that they're, they'll ruin what you're trying to do, but they're not going to actually work along with you. So I think you need to make sure you bring everybody along. And the thing that 
I strike most often when you're working with businesses around this in this area is that, you know, leaders within businesses will say, you know, I tell them what to do and they don't listen. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm always like, yeah, but are you listening to them? Why should they listen to you if you don't listen to them? And I think, um, you know, I think if you're going to be rebuilding, you're going to be changing things when business goes, and I say this in inverted commas, back to normal, you're going to have to listen to your people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's going to be so many challenges for for all businesses big or small heading forward and would you also say resilience is another of your great qualities and as an example of that you wrecked your knee uh in october 2005 you had your reconstruction and then pretty much your two years of netball after that were probably two of the best years of your career was that a test of resilience for you yeah i think so and res- often you don't know how resilient you are until it's tested do you you know you can you can sit here and say I'm really resilient but until something like that happens you don't really know and um I came out of that whole process understanding that it was actually a really good thing to happen to me and you know going into the 2005 season I had just made been made captain of the Australian team 12 months before and we had basically gone on this huge losing streak. We're being flogged by New Zealand every time we put our head above the parapet. And things were really difficult. You know, during that time, I'd um, formed the Australian Netball Players Association with a couple of other players. There was some um, disquiet around that from management. They didn't like what, you know, that meant for them. And I had all these, a few other pressures on me. And my body, I think, just basically gave me the wake-up call that I actually needed to... Um, focus on myself for a bit so yeah I was I guess yeah you could say I was particularly resilient in coming back from that injury but the silver lining for that was that it, it allowed me to walk away from the sport for six months and re, re, re or reconnect with my passion so you know I rebuilt myself from almost from the knees up and came back fitter and stronger but more importantly I came back more enthusiastic and happier about it you know I'd in the lead in my form had been struggling a little bit because I had allowed all these other things to be a weight on my shoulders. Then when I injured myself, I pushed a lot of the way, just focused on being a netball player again and had, as you say, two great years. So resilience was really important, but finding my passion was super important as well. Interesting how uh, a bit of adversity can can benefit um, further down the track. I spoke to Australian women's cricket captain uh, Meg Lanning a couple of months ago, she was saying that her shoulder injury changed her as a leader. It sort of gave her a taste of what it was like on the periphery of the team looking in, sort of in a way taught her to empathise with players who were on the fringes, you know, trying to fight their way into the team. And she hadn't ever really put herself in their shoes. And that actually changed her her captaincy and the way she, she thought about team. Um, mm. Yeah, it's it's. did you have any of that? Yeah, I did actually. You know what what the real shock for me was, right? So when I first became captain, I was a real micromanager. I used to have to do everything because I thought the team couldn't function without me doing everything, running the warm-up, working at this and that and everything else, right? Being absolutely fingers in every single pie. And then I injured myself before the Commonwealth Games in 2006 and I turned up to watch the first match. I was working in Melbourne and I went in to watch the first game and, the team was warming up without me. I was like, they don't need me. Hmm. They can warm up without me. They can play without me. And it really reinforced to me that actually no one's irreplaceable, that you leave as a captain and someone else will stand up and be the captain and your team goes on without you. But 
So to be an effective leader, you actually have to empower everyone else to lead with you. And I think that was the main difference when I came back from my injury is that I was far more prepared to delegate things to people to take, A, take a load off my shoulders, but to B, to develop the leaders around me so that when I did step out of the position, not much changed. You know, there were still good leaders to step in and do the job. And that was really, you know, like Meg, you, you stand out of the team and you go, oh, I'm not part of this anymore. It's actually a nasty feeling. I'd been in the, in the Australian netball team for 11 seasons, 12 seasons in a row. I'd never been dropped and suddenly I was out through injury and it gives you an entirely different perspective. But just quietly, how good is Meg Lanning? Oh, unbelievable. And um, if you're listening to this podcast, go back and have a listen to that one with Meg Lanning. Um, now, uh, it has also been suggested that the fact social media wasn't terribly prolific during your career is probably not <laughs> a bad thing. Um, social media for... Um, for the younger players uh, in a team, gee, there's, there's, it's a great side of it, but there's also a dark side of social media, isn't there? Oh, there is. And, you know, I do laugh if social media had have been around when I was playing, I probably wouldn't have lasted very long. <laughs> so I suspect Kath Cox might have told you a few stories, Nick McArdle, but anyway, let's not go there. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think it is a trap. And the thing that I think it does is it, it saps people of energy, you know, and we've seen that at, at the Olympics, haven't we? We've seen young swimmers say, oh, my God, I was on social media too really late at night. And it, things that get said on social media, I think the problem is that you read them in your rational voice, right? And you think, oh, my God, a rational person is writing this. But occasionally it's not someone particularly rational or it's someone with a different axe to grind and it's really hard to differentiate those voices. So I really do feel sorry for athletes trying to navigate social media and, you know, the dark side of it that we see, with, especially with some of the football players we've seen, they're really struggling with it because I liken it to... What gets said on social media is what people used to yell at the television in their lounge room, yes, right? Yes. In the olden days, right? So, but no one heard that. And but now you can amplify your voice so much. So rather than yelling at your television, you put it on social media, and the person that you're yelling at actually gets it directly. And I've had that a few times, and I've gone back to people and said, you know, and challenged them as to what they've said to me, and they've been really surprised that I've read it. Yeah. So, you know, they put things out there and people put things out there and don't understand and it goes to a real human with real feelings. And I don't know how you manage that. I don't have the magic bullet for, for young athletes to manage that other than to say, you know, perhaps there's a time and a place to be on social media and the less you're on it, the better. Yeah, turn it off. Don't go there. Um, I know, but it's hard, isn't it? Because it's a way to connect with your fans and well, your sponsors true. want it. And so yep. there's some really good upsides especially with I will say this especially with female athletes so um, you know we've seen the really ugly side with you know the trolling of someone like Taylor Harris who is an outstanding athlete but then the upside is that you know it lets you connect with fans who wouldn't otherwise be able to connect with you who you know don't have any other way of, of getting to you because they don't see you on, you know f female athletes on you know, mainstream TV all the time. So there's there's a real upside, but there's a there's a terrible downside that I'm not sure if they balance each other out. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Mm, indeed. Um, in retirement, uh, you've continued to, to be a leader in, in many ways. In fact, you became an officer of the Order of Australia in 2018. Um, and part of that was your support and advocacy for, for young women. You're obviously very aware of your ability to influence young women and, and to still lead, in a sense, young women. Yeah, and that's been the thing for me when I stepped out of that team environment uh, when I retired from netball, so much of my life was around the role of being a netball player and then being the captain of the Australian netball team. And you step out of it. And I was really careful to have thought long and hard before I retired about what role I might step into. And I think one of the dangers around athletes retiring is that they would, it's all about retiring from your sport. It's not about retiring to, to something. Mm. So I retired to really step into a role in the media and, um, doing some work on boards and things like that. And part of that for me was about thinking about how I might still be a leader within the general sports area. So there's ways of doing that. You know, I sat on the board of the Australian Sports Commission for a number of years. I was on the board um, of the Sydney Olympic Park Authority, of the New South Wales Institute of Sports. So they were really institutionalised leadership positions. But the thing that I'm passionate about is to make sport accessible to as many people as possible and enjoyable to as many people as possible. A lot of that is around women, young women playing sport. You know, the role models that are available for young women in sport. When I was a little girl, it never occurred to me that I could play netball because there wasn't a role model there to do that professionally, to show me that it was possible. So, you know, I've been, I'm really passionate about that. And now I've got a little girl of my own, she's eight. So I want her to have, you know, positive role models to look up to. She doesn't look up to me as a role model, but if I can be a part I guess all little girls look up to their mum, don't they? But if I can be a part of um, of a generation that has created a heap of role models or been part of it for young women, then that's how I see my role as leader. And also to speak out about um, about issues facing women and women in sport. So sometimes when you retire from your team, you can actually, it frees you up a bit. You can, you know, you can say what you like. I can say what I like, really, as long as it's not defamatory. I don't have to speak within the confines of netball anymore. I can speak out and be outspoken around the issues surrounding women in sport. So I guess that's how I define my, my leadership now. I don't really have a job, but I've got a voice. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned Evelyn, uh, because there's another way that you have and are continuing to make a difference. Um, you shared your story of your struggle to have children. Um, you're now mum to... Evelyn and Austin, um, but to say it was a struggle is probably an understatement, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you asked me before about my resilience and I thought I was tough and resilient as an athlete, but um, the period of time I spent going through fertility treatment showed me I had untapped reserves of resilience and you don't have to be an athlete to deal with that. So, Evelyn was, um, Matthew and I were in Europe on holiday and we thought we'd like to become parents. So within, we thought this would be a lark. And within six weeks, we were pregnant with Evelyn. And we thought, ha, how easy is it to fall pregnant? <laughs> and um, we had Evelyn and we thought, right, well, we, we better give her a sibling. And we thought this can't be too hard because we fell pregnant with Evelyn so easily. And we actually fell pregnant really quickly, which unfortunately ended in a miscarriage. And then there were months and months and months of nothing happening. So we went started to seek treatment for infertility and it was four years of treatment before we eventually decided that we had had enough. We had spent so much money and so much emotional energy on trying to have a baby 
And so we'd focus really hard on the child that we didn't have and we were losing focus on the child that we did have. So after four and a half years, we thought, right, we've got Evelyn, she'll be an only child. Uh, we'll start to work around how we deal with that. And then Austin came along the old fashioned way. So, mm. um, you know, that period of infertility was horrific and I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But the fact of the matter is that a large number of people um, suffer from infertility and no one really talks about it. So again, like I said, part of my leadership is I've got a voice. Um, and I was looking at I had this huge pile of papers and things that I gathered over the course of our fertility treatment. And I just had Austin and I thought, I should recycle this. And I thought, you know what? I've got so much information in my head that if I had have had it when we started out, it would have made things so much easier. I thought I'll turn it into a book. Mm. So I did. And I thought it was a really good idea. But it turns out when you write a book about medical stuff, you've got to get it all right. So um, it nearly... <laughs> Who'd have guessed? <laughs> right in... oh, no. ah, whatever. But writing the book... So writing the book was really... It nearly killed me. It was like my third baby. I got told by a fortune teller once I'd have three children and my book about fertility was is like my third child. But, you know, it's been great about that. It made me like... Writing books doesn't make you money, but um, I have got so many great messages from people over the last three or four years since um, the book was released telling me how it helped them through. And, you know, the book, I wanted it to be like a girlfriend who sits down with you and has a wine and has a cry and empathises with you when you need it, but gives you information when you need it. So the book is really informative, but lots of empathy and um, some pretty pathetic juvenile humour in it as well, which is sort <laughs> of <laughs> how I roll. So... Yeah, that was, um, I look back at that now and I think, God, that was an awful time. Going through that infertility, that period of infertility and the fertility treatment, it, you know, it, it tests you in ways that you thought you would never be tested. It tests you as a person, it tests your marriage, um, it tests how you parent. If For me, I was suffering from secondary infertility. So, you know, it was a horrible period. But again, like all forms of, like, you know, anytime your resilience is tested, you come out of it a stronger human being. And I imagine you spend, you know, five rounds of IVF, as I understand it, and and three miscarriages, Liz. I mean, you spend a lot of that time grieving. Yeah, you do. And I remember after I had my third miscarriage, I was lying in bed one night bawling my eyes out and I said to my husband, I can't believe... Like, when I had my third miscarriage, I really felt my age. I was 40 and I just thought... I'm never going to have this other child. And I really beat myself up because I thought, you know, I got we got married when I was 26 and we never did anything about, um, you know, freezing embryos or anything like that because I just assumed that it would happen. And I really beat myself up for that. And, you know, Matthew was like, oh, you know, you had a bit on. You know, you were <laughs> captaining Australia. You were winning World Cups. And I said to him, I'd hand all of them back now for, for a second child. So um, you... Grieving is so, um, it's hard because you're grieving for something that's not there. People know how to react when you're grieving if um, a parent dies. You know, I lost my father 10 years ago. There's a, there's a way to do that. When you're grieving for a child that was never born, it's a totally different thing and you don't feel like you can say it out loud. So, you know, it makes me emotional to think about it now. And I haven't visited this for a while, but, you know, you've got to, my job's public, so I'd have to turn up and commentate netball games or mm. host television programs or work on radio. I remember I was working on ABC radio and I loved doing radio one summer and I miscarried. 
and um, I, it was almost like I could feel it happening in my shift. But you've got to keep this bubbly persona going, you know, oh, hello, welcome back to ABC Local Radio. And oh, it is. The, oh, it's awful. I went to the doctor the next day and confirmed my suspicion. But, you know, it's, it's something that there's no words for, right? That grief, that loss is such a personal thing and there's no words for it. So, you know, when I... When I decided to write my book, it was to help people understand that and to understand they're not alone because that the fertility treatment, miscarrying, you can feel like you're so alone. So, you know, having a, even in, in a book someone say to you, you're not alone, this is how, these are the steps you can take, this is how you can get through it, all you need is a roadmap. So that's, I wanted to turn my grief into something that helped other people. And that book is uh, is called If At First You Don't Conceive and and now um, you've almost taken that to the next step um, from your personal struggle. You're now, in a sense, leading the discussion, as I understand it, around the link between reproductive health and, and women's sport. And, and there is a larger discussion to be had there. Yeah, and happily um, that discussion is now happening and it's, it's not just me that's having it. You know, I've been bleating away about it for a couple of years you know, one of the things that's really important around professionalism of female athletes is that when when netball and other sports become professional, then like any athlete, you want to play it for as long as you can, especially if you're earning good money and it's a great lifestyle and you get to do something you love. The risk for female athletes is that you, you play later and later. So you're actually playing through your fertility window. And at 35, that window starts to close and at 40, it really starts to drop off a cliff. I want sports to have this conversation with their athletes and I want sports to make provision for their athletes to, um, you know, either take a break to have their kids. Now, that's a nice thing, but a lot of athletes won't do that because female athletes, because of what it does to your body, there's a risk that you might not come back um, in as good a shape or, you know, you're trying to look after a kid. I can't imagine playing netball professionally after having my kids because I... I don't know that I could have done both, but we want to make sure that there's provision for female athletes, that they can actually preserve their fertility, whether it's freezing eggs or embryos. And it's, it's a bit of an awkward discussion to have, isn't it? But I think we've got to have it. And, you know, the key to it to start off with is education. You know, at school you learn about how not to fall pregnant. That's all the sex ed is. Yeah. You know you don't yes. fall pregnant, right? You're don't go near them. And- don't stand on the, don't sit on the yeah. same seat. <laughs> Here's a cucumber and here's a condom, right? That's, that's your sex then. <laughs> right, but then when you actually go to have, fall pregnant, you've got no, so many of us have no idea of how it all works, you know. When's, when's, how does the monthly cycle work? When's your fertile window within that cycle? So I had to go and educate myself on all this. And I, I had, I've spent decades thinking about my body and what it can do. And suddenly I didn't quite know how it was going to do the most the most natural thing of all, fall pregnant and have and have babies. So I think that's where sports need to go. So that that conversation has started and I'm constantly needling netball to say, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? Because it's hard for players to actually start those conversations, right? Because then the coach is like, what, what are you going to have a baby? Like you don't want to be a player and start that conversation. So it's a perfect conversation for me as an ex, ex-player to, to sort of lead. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, that – uh, there are so many things that sport leads on, um, but maybe sports dragging the chain a little bit compared to the corporate world. It, it, it feels like maybe the corporate world's a, a step ahead in that space. Is that a fair assessment? 
Yeah, it is. Although I will say I couldn't be prouder of my sport in terms of the maternity leave provisions that um, they negotiated for the, for Super Netball. So, you know, um, the top netballers, Australia's top netballers, if they, if they fall pregnant, then they actually receive maternity, paid maternity leave for two years. So that's extraordinary. And I love that my sport, as the biggest women's sport in Australia, is leading the way on that. But sport as a whole, I think you're right, hasn't quite got the grasp of that, of how they manage it. You know, we've seen a, a couple of things happen historically um, with female athletes that weren't looked after, that weren't able to manage both and that were discriminated against because they either fell pregnant or wanted to, you know, take their, their newborn baby with them. So sport has got a lot to learn. But I think um, you're so right. It leads in so many areas. And there's a real opportunity for sport to lead here. But I think as a whole, there's a, there's a way to go. I mean, when you talk about this, oh, my God, there's so many issues around. You know, we're talking right in the middle of the Black Lives Matter um, mm. movement that's happening. And, you know, I don't know that sport has got, got it anywhere near right in terms of that. So we have to sort of understand that there's lots of different issues and um, sport can't lead on all of them. But where we're passionate about it, then it, it can be pushed in the right direction. So good to catch up, Liz, and then I think we could probably talk for a whole lot longer, but uh, I've got to let you go. What's on the to-do list on the farm this afternoon? Oh, you know, I do laugh. I have to get my high-vis on regularly, so I've got a few high-vis shirts and some work boots. I've got a very glamorous life up here. <laughs> uh, on the farm this afternoon, we'll be moving some cattle around, so we've got a few paddocks and got to rest some, obviously, and, and move them around. And then um, we... Uh, we get a heap of grain from a local brewery after they've finished brewing beer and we get their grain. And so at the moment it's my job to bucket the grain out of the back of the truck and into um, big buckets for the cows to eat. So I don't go to the gym anymore. <laughs> I just work on the farm. Well, it's, it sounds like there's a lot to do, so I better let you go. Um, Elizabeth, thank you for joining us on the Playmakers Playbook. Oh, Nick, it's been a pleasure. Thank you and always great to catch up. Bucketing grain for the cattle on the farm in the Byron Bay hinterland. It's a long way from the young woman who wanted to make partner in that big end of town law firm, and she wouldn't have it any other way. Liz Ellis on this week's Playmakers Playbook. Hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I've enjoyed producing it. Really good fun. The Playmakers Playbook is brought to you by BuildCorp, where great teams are built on shared values. It's available wherever you get your favourite podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Deezer. Make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And as always, if you have liked what you've heard today, give us a five-star rating or just simply tell a friend. I look forward to your company next week on The Playmaker's Playbook. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.